Bibles, turn on your Bibles, or lift your hand so we can bring you a Bible uh, so that you can uh, follow along with us as we uh, look into what God's Word has to say, uh, not what I have to say. And that's a, that's a tall order. Of course, I'm going to be saying things, um, but you'll have to test with what, whether what I'm saying comports with what God says, right? So uh, the habit of not turning into your Bible is a bad habit because then you're just depending on what I'm saying and take it from me, that's not good, okay? Um, so if you could pray with me that the Lord would use this time and that anything I say would match with what his scripture does say, let's pray. God, we do want you to speak to us, God, just as we sang there. We want our hearts to be formed and fashioned by what we see in Scripture. We pray that you would challenge our minds so that you can change our hearts. In the next few moments, God, uh, use your truth, your word, to do a work in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's writing this letter, and Paul is writing with urgency for churches to do what maybe they wouldn't do if they went on autopilot, right? If we just go on autopilot and we just kind of bump along in our existence, there are certain things that we'll keep doing. We'll probably keep eating. We'll probably keep hanging out. But there are certain things that we might, that might fall by the wayside, and one of those things is prayer. One of those things is prayer. And he tells Timothy, I I urge you first to protect doctrine in the church. Remember, we talked about that, the importance of protecting sound truth. I mean, if if we don't have truth, what in the world are we doing here? If it's your opinion, my opinion, his opinion, like, why why am I the one standing up here? Why, Why don't we just have a big discussion and, you know, no, there's truth. But then when he starts applying that to the church, his first move is to urge prayerfulness. You see that with me in First uh, Timothy. We'll see it right at the top of chapter two, right at the ch- top of chapter two. You see the urgency there. First of all, <laughs> we're going to address many things here, but first we need to talk about this issue of prayer. We need to be praying. We need to be a praying church. First of all, then I urge that supplications. Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So when he starts out right there, you see this stacking of words. Some of them that we don't use that much. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Those are all different ways of saying prayer. Now some some people say, uh, here's a list of four things we need to do. You know, we need to, uh, we need supplication, and when you're done with supplication, don't forget a prayer. When you're done with prayer, don't forget to intercede. I don't think that's what Paul is, is getting at. I think he's stacking words to, to say, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about praying, interceding, right? I'm going before the Lord and bringing requests before Him is praying. And some of that is giving thanks. Some of that is requests. It's, it's all of it. So I think he's just 
he's, he's heightening that urgency. I urge you to pray, 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 pray. He's just using different words to describe what prayerfulness is like. So I think we miss it if we just try to itemize it. But instead, let's understand it as, as, as Paul pressing the need into your heart and into your minds to be praying, to be a praying people. But he wants us to pray for other people, and not just some of them, all of them, right? I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And in verse 2, he gives us an example. How about kings? How about people who are in high positions? I, I think what he's bringing to mind First of all, is, is a, a group of people that may get missed. Prayer might get missed in a church, but even when we do pray, who are the kinds of people that we might miss? We'll pray for the aunt with the upcoming surgery, and we'll pray for our kid who's going to college. We pray for the people that we're most concerned about, but do we pray for the people that we blast on Facebook because they disagree with our politics? If you had two columns on a page and in one column you had all the tweets, all the Facebook posts, all the rants that you made about a politician, and the other column, how often you prayed for them, which column would win? He's not saying pray for people you like. I mean, did they love Nero? <laughs> it's a little debated when this was written, but it's not like Nero was preceded or succeeded by some you know, stalwart Christians. We often are so concerned with the candidate being Christian or so concerned that a candidate follow how we think the country should be run, and it's not bad to get involved in that, understand people's positions. I understand all that. Don't get me wrong, but when a person is in a position, we're not allowed to check out. So he's pressing us to do something that's uncomfortable and to do it in a way that's uncomfortable. Pray, all kinds of prayers, all kinds of prayers. Don't forget kings, people in high positions. Why? Why is it important? Well, it would be one thing to pray for the president, pray for the president's family, pray for a king, a queen, and pray for their daughters, and pray for the upcoming marriage. That's not quite what he's getting at. He's saying regardless of their position, you remember when he wrote the Romans, and he told, he told the Christians in Rome, uh, all the governing authorities are under God. They're his servants. They're doing his work. Government is how God, one of the ways God just keeps order in the world. So we're praying not just for you know, individuals in the cabinet, congressmen and congresswomen or whatever, individually that they would be saved. That's not wrong to pray that, but he's not, that's not quite what he's getting at. He's saying pray that they would do their job in a way that lends itself to peaceful living. You see that there. Pray for all people, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we pray for governing authorities so that we can live in peace. Now, I think the temptation there is to go, yeah, we need the government kind of off our back and, and just leave us alone and we'll leave you alone kind of thing. But he, he's not praying for peace and quiet. He's not praying for a tranquility so that we can be quiet. 
He's praying that the government would be quiet toward us so that we can be loud concerning the gospel. In other words, he's, he wants Christians to advance the gospel, to join him in this mission of pushing the gospel into places where it's not, talking to people about Christianity, talking to people about the faith. But as that happened, historically, I mean, governments come down on that stuff. Persecution. So he's essentially praying that governing authorities would persecute less so we can have the peace, the, the civility that we need to be on mission. And folks, I think we reverse this. We reverse this. Our way of peace and tranquility is to be quiet about the gospel. And as governing authorities get louder about hostility toward the gospel, we get quieter to maintain that quiet balance. And he's, no, he's saying no. You're going to be loud. And yes, yeah, some of you might get burned, ripped apart, thrown in jail, separated from your families, but you keep preaching the gospel. But that doesn't mean you relish getting thrown in jail. That doesn't mean, Lord, help us to be such a spiritual church we all get you know, executed for our faith. No, you're not supposed to want that or pray for that. But you're also not supposed to be quiet about the gospel. So what, what should you pray for? Well, pray that the governing authorities would back off. That's, that's why we're praying for our government. We're not praying for them because we like them so much. He's not asking you to put a lawn sign in front of your house supporting them. Whatever the party, whatever the, the things are that they do, you pray for them so that we can advance the gospel. Listen to how the logic flows from verse 1 and 2. Pray for the kings. Why? So that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But that doesn't mean go be a hidden Christian. Verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior. Why? What does God want? He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? So there's, there's what God wants to happen out there. Peace and civility so that that is happening. Then verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a life for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I love when he inserts that. Like, hey, man, seriously. I'm, like, it's like him emphasizing the, the weight of this, the truth of this, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So let's just go through it backwards really quickly. He's saying in verse 7 that he's been given a... Mission by God. He's supposed to take this truth and take it out to the Gentiles, all kinds of people. And what he's taking to the Gentiles is a message. We see that in verse 5 and 6, that good news of Jesus Christ, the mediator. The reason why he's taking the message is because he's been given a mission that comports with God's heart toward people. In verse 3, what is good and pleasing in the sight of God? To have a peaceful, quiet life. Why? To have a, a venue where the, the gospel can go out, that mandated message can go out for the ultimate mission of saving people. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you see how everything connects. He's not saying, hey, pray. Oh, don't forget kings. Oh, don't forget missions. It's all together. Pray for kings so that missions can happen is what he's saying. So if our heart is for people to be saved, if our heart is for the gospel to get out there, 
we've got to be getting out there. But we recognize that sometimes it's governing authorities make that difficult, especially in other places of the world. Let's not forget. Let's not be so nationalistic. We only pray for our own leaders. But let's think about what's going on elsewhere and praying for authorities elsewhere so that Christians can do the work of spreading the gospel. So this is what, this is what Paul is urging. This is at the top of the list. Before he even gives us qualifications for how to choose leaders in the church. To, you know, he's saying, to lead what? What are elders leading? He gives us this paragraph. That a church should be about praying. And a church should be about advancing the gospel. It's not enough to say we've got sound doctrine. That doctrine has to press us into action. And the kind of action it presses us into is evangelism. But evangelism's hard, especially when the governing authorities aren't on board. Well, pray. And he's urging that prayer. It's so easy to just see this as optional. But, but of course, it, it's Scripture. It's authoritative. And I don't think this is just for the people in Ephesus at a particular time. We don't have the excuse of saying, yeah, but our kings are, are bad. No, their kings were bad. You know, there's, there's no way of kind of wiggling out from underneath the urgency that this passage places on us to be a praying people and to pray for people in high positions. Now, every once in a while, we'll come to a passage, and even though it's not the main point of a passage, there'll be something there that is on people's hearts and on people's minds, and maybe some of you are not aware of how controversial this verse is, uh, and I'm guessing that many of you are aware of how controversial this verse is, and so I do want to take a few minutes to maybe bring some clarification, maybe, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if you'll call it clarification when we're done. But you've got warring factions within Christianity that will take this verse and make it one of their linchpin verses for their position on what God does in terms of saving people. The controversial verse is verse 4 that says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved. Well, what's debatable about that? Well, you've got universalists who would say, well, God does what he desires. Does God do what he desires? If God does what he desires and he desires all people to be saved, all people are going to be saved. I mean, that's, that's the position of the universalist. Um, but we know immediately that doesn't make sense. You don't really even have to leave 1 Timothy to see that that doesn't make sense. Back up in verse 19 in chapter 1, some people shipwreck their faith. I mean, what do you do with those people? They shipwreck their faith, right? Um, well, does God desire Hymenaeus and Alexander to be saved? Well, Paul does when he says, let's hand them over to Satan, but there's no guarantee that they would learn not to blaspheme. There's not a guarantee. And so we, we see that there are people that are saved, they have faith, there are people that don't have faith, and there are people that claim to have faith, and then they shipwreck their faith. And there is something to all the teaching we have, a lot of it from Jesus himself. There's a narrow gate and a broad gate. Everyone doesn't go to the narrow gate. Most people don't go through the narrow gate. That's why it's so narrow. He talks about separating the sheep and the goats. It's not two sections of heaven, right? There's an in and there, there's an out. Jesus talked a lot about hell, and he didn't talk about it in terms of being this empty place. 
but very much full of people who reject God's mercy and grace. So universalism, that's, that can't be what Paul is getting at here when he says God desires all people to be saved. In fact, he says he desires all people to be saved. He doesn't say he saves all people. So universalism, I think we should take that off the shelf and throw it in the trash. But then you've got two other groups of people. You can Whatever you want to call them. Oftentimes, Arminians versus Calvinists, right? And if that term escapes you, Wikipedia it later. It, you'll be there for hours. It's fine. But on the one hand, you'll have Christians who will say, well, God doesn't wish that anyone would go to hell. God doesn't desire that anyone would be punished. And this verse proves that. He desires that people are saved, but, but they have to wrestle with the fact that not everyone is saved. So they have to answer the idea that God desires people to be saved, but some of those people that he desires to be saved don't get saved. So God doesn't always get what he wants. He wants it. He's up there like, mm, oh, please, please. Oh, man. And he just kind of has to give up on that. God is kind of either powerless to do it, or he's given up that power to do it. He can make someone do it, but he's not going to make anyone do anything. He just leaves it to them. Free will, right? So God wants people to be saved, but some people out of their own free will reject it, or out of their own free will accept it. So therefore, they accept God's grace based on their willpower, or they reject God based on their willpower. So they'll say, look at the verse, it says it right there, he wants everyone, he wants everyone to be saved. Now, people on the other side might point out a few things, but it doesn't really resolve the dilemma that not everyone is saved. I mean, at the end of the day, God is God, and he's all-powerful, and he's all-wise, and he, he can't even save everybody. And even the Arminian or the free will person has to come to grips with the idea that not, not everyone is saved, though. It doesn't really resolve that dilemma except to sort of um, make God's power a little smaller or make his ability narrower. I think in chapter 1, verse 16... Paul gives us the reason why he turned. He was the worst. You remember the foremost of sinners. He's the foremost. He's the chief of sinners. In verse 16, I mean, he, what changed? He received mercy. I mean, God gave him something everyone doesn't get is what it looks like to me. So I think that presents a difficulty that we have to wrestle with. And then to see all God desires all people to be saved as every individual to be saved, that can be an issue. Because think about it. At the top when he says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Is that every individual? How long would we be here if we had to pray for every individual that holds a governing office? Every single one of them. Is that even possible? Uh, I don't think that's what he means. I think he means kings, governors, mayors, queens, right? It's categories of people, not necessarily every single individual. And that comports with what he's saying. I've been called to Gentiles. That's how he ends the paragraph. I've been called to Gentiles. God wants Gentiles to be saved too, Jews, right? In other words, 
God's grace isn't specific to a category of people. But God's grace can abound to all people, even if it doesn't abound to every individual person within the people. So I think that is something that we need to keep in mind as well. And then finally, verse 6 poses a problem. Because if all people means every individual people, verse 6 says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for every individual. So now you've got to reinterpret what does it mean that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for somebody that the ransom didn't work for. Okay. Now we can be here for another you know, several hours unpacking that, but I'm just, these are some things to wrestle with. I don't think this is a knockdown verse, free will. I, I just don't think it works for that. On the other hand, Calvinists will say, this is our verse because it all means categories. Right? Um, the danger there is that it sounds sometimes like the Calvinist is saying, God doesn't care about everybody. He only cares about select individuals. And I'm not sure if that matches all of Scripture. You remember uh, the, the couple of passages in Ezekiel where God makes it clear, I don't take pleasure in punishing anyone. I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, he, he, he smashes the wicked throughout Scripture. He's saying, I don't desire that. So does God sometimes do something that in one sense he desires, but in another sense he doesn't desire? Yeah. Think about a judge that consigns someone to a prison sentence who doesn't enjoy slamming the gavel. But if you ask the person, do you enjoy your career? Do you enjoy what you do? In one sense, yes. I think justice is good. I think evil should be punished. I want to slam that gavel. But in another sense, do you, do you enjoy slamming that gavel? No, I don't like sending people to jail. There's a sense in which yes and a sense in which no. And if a human's heart can be that multifaceted and layered, I think an infinite God that we're trying to glimpse through Scripture can be as well. I think of Jesus when he tells Jerusalem, I send you prophets, you stone them. I send you preachers, you kill them. And I'm sending you preachers because my heart, my longing is to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not. So Jesus is displaying a heart toward lost people that reject him. And so I, I don't think we want to end up in a place where, where God only has love and compassion for the ones he saves and for everyone else's good riddance. I don't, I don't think so. I think we want to be in a place where we go, yeah, God has love for the world. His electing love is different, and it's not deserved. His mercy that lands on somebody, that's, that's different, but it doesn't mean that, that he has no desire whatsoever for other categories of people. I don't think this verse, when Paul wrote it, I don't think he was thinking in terms of Calvinists versus Arminians. I just don't think this verse is a weapon for either side. I think it fits better with the Calvinist position. That's my thinking on it. But I don't think it could be used a hammer either way because when we get too far on that side that God only loves certain people, we start maybe losing the, the edge of that zeal to get out there in the world to the lost and to the hurting and to the people still stuck in darkness because in the back of our hearts we're like, well, I don't know, does God even love them? Yes! <laughs> go get them. Go tell. Go send the prophets. What if they get stoned? Still go. That's the whole point of Jonah, isn't it? Jonah's like, not these people. I don't want to preach to these people. They hate you. 
And God's like, don't I have the right to set my compassion on whomever? Right? So he's teaching Jonah, don't be limited. Don't be selective in who you preach to. You preach to all people. Because my desire is for all. That doesn't mean all get saved. But it means that our hearts are supposed to align with God's so that we desire to get out there and advance the gospel. Oftentimes, government is what gets in the way, especially for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And we need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for the executioners and the church bombers and whoever's leading that stuff. I mean, we need to be praying for less of that so that the gospel can advance. So God's desire is for us to pray as a people, especially for authorities, to advance the gospel. And what is the gospel? Really quickly, verse 5 and 6 make it clear. There's one God. Everyone's problem is that they're separated from this one God. And it's the one God that they're separated from. They can claim another God and still be separated from the one God that matters. One God created you. One God demands your worship. You're responsible to worship an image, reflect one creator God, but we don't reflect his image. We worship ourselves or we worship something else. We've fallen. So we need a mediator. We need a go-between. And there's only one go-between that can get us to that one God. And the reason why there's only one is not because he's such a special person, like God selected him out of a long line of eligible humans, but there's only one man who's also God. He's the God-man, and so he can mediate between God and man, the man, Messiah, Christ, Jesus. What did he do for that mediation? He didn't sit us down at a table and go, now, now, Father, be nice. It's not that kind of mediation, but it's a substitutional sacrifice. That's how he gave himself in verse 6. He gave himself as a ransom. In other words, he satisfied a debt that we had that we couldn't satisfy ourselves. The gavel had to fall. Otherwise, God wouldn't be just. The gavel did fall, but it fell on his son instead of us. So God's love and justice were both preserved in Christ mediating between us. And this is the testimony. That's the testimony. That's what, that's what we witness to. When we share the gospel with people, that's what we share. There's one God. Well, I have another religion. Our response isn't supposed to be, oh, okay. As long as that suits you, we're supposed to say, but that's not this God. You're responsible to this God. And we're supposed to press that, explain that. Not as jerks, but as people who align with God's heart for people to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's why he's a teacher of faith and truth at the end of verse 7. So being a, a witness, you have to be a teacher. And that might feel like a weight to some of you. I'm not a teacher. He's not asking you to stand up with a whiteboard and tricolored markers and a PowerPoint. He said, can you explain what happened to you? Do you have a, a, a chapter 1 verse 16 moment where you were one kind of person and then suddenly you received mercy in your life? Can you talk about that? That's what you're teaching. 
When you explain the mediation of Jesus Christ, it's very personal to you because Jesus Christ did that for you. You've experienced that. You've come to that knowledge of that saving truth, and you explain that as a witness. That's your testimony. So it's, it's both. You're not just talking to somebody about theological content. You're not just telling your story like, I was a, kind of a depressed person, and then I started going to church, and then I was really happy. Why is that not the gospel? Nothing about one God, nothing about one mediator, nothing about a ransom. That's why it's not the gospel. That's just you decided to join a club and clean up your habits. That's, that's different. But we don't just give a doctrinal essay without, without showing how our lives reflect that because that's what Paul did at the end of chapter 1. It's both together as we communicate this to people. And to communicate this to people, we're going to catch heat for it. And so we pray for less heat so we can evangelize more. There's a message. And we need to be urgent. We need to be urgent about the praying part of it. So really quickly, what can we do in response? I think it'd be really silly to amen this passage and not be sure about what to do. When it's pretty clear, pray. <laughs> pray. Right. Now, as we mature and grow as a church, we might have more venues to pray, but I'd love to see our limited venues advance a little more, and then maybe we can talk about other venues. But what are some venues that we do have right now? Well, we have our growth groups. It's okay to be on your own and pray on your own. We want you to pray on your own, but there's something about gathering together. These instructions are given to a church there's a togetherness in the praying and the lifting up of prayers and thanksgivings and supplications and intercessions together. And so the challenge to the growth groups is to pray more in more advanced ways than your cold, your dog who's got hip problems. You know, it's not to denigrate those, but the substance, the core, the backbone of our prayer should, the urgency of prayer is not pets and sniffles. But the advancement of the gospel, people are out there dying. We've got brothers and sisters out there getting beheaded. Some of them, you know, on YouTube. We've got pastors getting separated from their families. I mean, this, this is almost normal in pockets of the world. And so for us to gather and just kind of bemoan, you know, um, you know at work, my chair is uncomfortable, that, that, that just doesn't... That doesn't jive with what Scripture is pressing as urgent. This is urgent. So let's, let's raise that level in our growth groups, which start this week, by the way. You can look in your bulletin if you want to join in. There's information there. We have our Sunday morning prayers. Now, various churches in various cultures kind of treat prayer differently, and I think we can learn from one another. I remember as a kid, uh, I went to uh, my, uh, when we moved, when my mother and I moved from Massachusetts to New Jersey, we just kind of joined her sister's church. And um, they were very uh, not Latino. I don't know how. <laughs> it's a very calm church, very organized, orderly. Start time, very precise. End time, pretty precise. I liked it. I, I liked it. But after, after a while, my mom was just kind of like, ah, I, I need a church that's different. I'm like, okay. 
can I go to this one? I was already plugged in with youth group and, and friends. And she's like, yeah, you go. To... We actually started going to separate churches, my mother and I. And I was like middle high school. Uh, I would sometimes visit my mother's church. Everything's in Spanish. So I caught like, you know, 40% of what was being said. Very different. Uh, purses are filled with tambourines that would come out, you know, on cue. People are moving and dancing up and down the aisles. They're loud. Start time, smart time. End time, schmen time. <laughs> lunch, whatever. We're eating Jesus for, for lunch, you know. Um, they would do prayer vigils. Prayer vigils. That would last throughout the night. I don't know about some about you. Like, I used to pull all-nighters to, to squeeze out a paper in college. And somewhere around my mid-20s, I, I discovered I can still do that, but then I'm totally trashed the next day. And then I hit, you know, I don't know, maybe around mid-30s, and I realized I can't even do that to be trash. And I can't even do it anymore. I used to be the king of all-nighters. These people, they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all-night prayer vigils. It wasn't because their homes were blown up. It wasn't because some huge catastrophe. It was because it was Thursday night. They would fast, go without food. Now, they had other issues. You know, they didn't like makeup, girls had a dress, you know, skirt. They had other things. But one, one thing I think churches can learn from these churches, the urgency of prayer. The urgency of prayer. So if one of these church members, one of these fiery Pentecostal churches meets you and asks you, what do you guys do for prayer? We pray for 30 minutes on Sunday morning. We can at least do that. We can at least show up 9.30, 15 minutes, 9.30 to 9.45. Pray. Let's start there. Let's, have some, let's, let's come with some urgency to it because it's scriptural. So my argument isn't let's do it because some Latino church does it. My argument is do, are they exemplifying something that's biblically mandated? Looks like it. So let's gather. Let's gather and let's pray Maybe you just start with one Sunday a month, right? But it's a half hour difference if you're coming at 10. A lot of you don't come at 10, but if you theoretically came at 10 and you just move it a half hour and say, I'm going to come, come at 9.30, it's not really a big sacrifice in the scheme of what Christians are going through in other places. Final venue is here and now in this service. So I want to just take a couple of minutes before uh, Dave comes back up to lead us in prayer. And let, let's just pray together. I'll lead us. I'll lead us. I'm not asking any of you to pray out loud at this moment. But uh, in your hearts and in your minds, would you, let's just take a, a, a couple of minutes to, to put into action what this passage is calling us to do. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for our, oftentimes, a, maybe a lack of urgency, maybe a lack of interest, maybe it's just ignorance, maybe some of us are a little bit closed off to what's really happening out there, some of it is probably a lack of faith, where we don't see behind the curtain, we're not seeing the warring demonic activity 
we see people, but we don't see lost souls. We see co-workers. We don't see condemned people. We see jovial, nice uh, atheists, but we, we don't see um, people upon whose, uh, that, that bear God's wrath. Um, so our first prayer is, God, that you would bend our hearts to reflect you, your heart toward people, and that you don't um, relish condemnation. You, you don't click your heels for joy at condemnation, but instead you desire they come to the knowledge of truth. And we want to be your image bearers, we want to be your voice calling out to them, we want to be your prophets. Even if we have to get stoned for it, God. So our next prayer is for courage. We pray for courage. We would be voices. We would be heralds. We would be bearers of a testimony that point people to the good news, point people to hope. God, we pray those things so that we would see even more how relevant it is to pray for a government that allows those kinds of actions. That we pray for a, for a government that allows for peaceful lives so that we can be loud about the gospel and still live in peace. Uh, compared to other places, God, we still have that. We do have that, but oftentimes it looks like that's diminishing. We also don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to just assume it and then pray it when it's too late. We, we pray it now. And so we, we do pray for our president. Uh, some of us might think there's a lot of great things he's doing. Some of us might think he's, he's the worst president ever, whatever the case. We know he's your man. We know he's your guy. Uh, and you hold king's hearts like streams in your hand. So we pray that you would use him, the people that surround him, to um, implement whatever needs to be implemented, emphasize whatever needs to be emphasized uh, so that your gospel can advance with minimal friction in this country. God, we think of other places, other nations, other countries where persecution is hot. God, we pray that those believers wouldn't lose courage, that they wouldn't lose hearts, and we pray that we would... Uh, Take a cue from their boldness. But God, we pray for whoever is in charge in those different regions and different places. Uh, maybe they usurped authority to be in charge, but at the end of the day, they rule. And we pray that you would do something there so that there's peace in the lands and that these burgeoning churches can really explode and advance and train up elders and overseers and uh, mature and grow in Christ. We pray that they would be missionary sending people. God, all these things, Lord, we, we pray them. We want to pray them with urgency. We pray that you would give us a sense of that urgency more and more so that as a church uh, we can continue praying, Lord. And we thank you. We thank you for the people that do 
come and, and, and pray with us. We thank you for the people that open up those emails and see the prayer requests and, and join and, and praying for those things. We thank you for our growth groups, that we do have people that come and gather and pray and everything isn't about colds. There, there is prayer happening that advances the gospel, that is urgent, and we pray for more of it. We pray for growth in it. We pray that you would add to it. And so, Lord, all these different uh, things, God, that we're told to do in Scripture, we need your help to do it. And so as we close in this song, we pray that our hearts would align with what we're singing, the content of the gospel, that our hearts would burn with it, and that we would leave here vocal about it and prayerful toward it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.